Hello, welcome to the Joy Outside podcast from Justice Outside. This podcast is about celebrating joy in the outdoors for people of color. Through each episode, we highlight the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are exploring the outdoors, finding joy in community there, and working for equity and justice. We will also share tips and tricks about enjoying the outdoors, whether that's through exploring your backyard, hiking, skiing, or in any other way. This podcast is hosted by my colleagues at Just Outside, Noor Jahan, Jacqueline, and myself. My name is Susan, and I will be your host today. I am the Communications and Advocacy Manager at Justice Outside. I enjoy moving daily, walks outside, Sudoku, listening to music, and learning about natural sciences. Today, I'm so happy to be talking with Rina Payan, the Director of Grant Making here at Justice Outside. Hi, Rina. Thank you so much for joining us at our podcast today. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I hold the excitement of like our whole team right now in this conversation. So to get us started, can you just tell us about Rena? Yeah, well, um, I'm Rena. I am the daughter of Raul and Nora Payan. Uh, I grew up here in the Central Valley of California, what is um, rightfully the ancestral homelands of the Yakut-speaking tribes of the San Joaquin Valley. we grew up um, what some might consider poor, what I consider rich in spirit and um, and rich in love. Um, but we uh, are a family of hard workers. My parents grew up as farm workers and they instilled um, uh, an idea of hard work um, and striving towards um, enjoying our lives, but also ensuring that we're bringing people along with us. And those ideas and those fundamental um, pieces of my growing up are really instrumental to the work that I do at Justice Outside now. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I agree with the term. I prefer the term of rich in spirit, you said, right? Yeah. I can identify with that experience as well and would agree. Can you tell us about your relationship with the outdoors throughout your life? Yeah, well, we're we're Mexican, Mexican American. Um, I'm uh, second and third generation, um, depending on the parent, and so the outdoors has always been a huge part of my life. Um, like I said, my parents were um, migrant workers, farm workers growing up, and so they spent a lot of time in the outdoors. And that idea of labor didn't um, always translate to the outdoors, right? Um, because now I think of the outdoors as somewhere that I go to recreate and to find myself and to to be at peace and to be in community. Um, and for them, that was a different experience. And so when I think about my connection to the outdoors, I often think of it um, as something that I kind of had to be reintroduced to. When I was little, we spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, there were carnesadas that we went to, family gatherings. Um, we're always outside. I have over 30 cousins on my mom's side. So at times we quite literally didn't fit indoors. <laughs> As quickly as the cousins started having cousins. And so we were always outdoors and, and the outdoors felt like a place where family was. It was it was in um, inextricably, inextricably linked to, um, to family and community. Um, and then I lost part of that. Um, when you go through middle school and when you go through high school, mm-hmm. um, your attentions go in different directions, but also um, my connection to the outdoors started to really become something 
different, right? Mm -hmm. That it wasn't the outdoors. I wasn't spending as much time with my family. And so I didn't spend as much time with the outdoors. And um, when I was in my early 20s, I got reconnected by working at a summer camp. And I was reminded how much I love being outdoors. I was reminded how much I love to be outdoors with other people and in community with other people having these experiences. Um, and I was having completely new experiences in the outdoors when I was in my 20s. I had never been rock climbing or sea kayaking or backpacking. And those were things I was experiencing in, in my 20s when I um, when I worked at camp and eventually worked at um, an outdoor education school. And so over the years, my connection to the outdoors and my relationship has changed and shifted based mm. on different experiences and priorities. But it's always been there since even before I was born with my parents um, and the work that they did growing up. Um, and so it's been an incredible evolution, um, my relationship, and I'm in, in a really happy place with it now. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, it is really interesting how your relationship with nature, right, evolves in different ways. As you said, it depends on your priorities or relationships. Um, and again, in terms of the carne asada, like I usually like when I thought about my childhood, I was like, oh, I didn't really grow up with much exposure in the outdoors because I was in New York City. Right. But like a central tenant of our family life was the like, I, like especially during the summer, it would be like almost weekly carne asadas, you know, and we could literally because we couldn't fit inside. <laughs> but yeah. it's, I'm really happy to hear that where you are now is it's a really beautiful place in your relationship with the outdoors. Um, and so that brings us to what do you do at Just Is Outside? <laughs> um, I've, I've been with Justice Outside now for um, a little over eight years. And so I've done quite a few things at Justice Outside that I'm super proud of. Um, but currently I find myself just... Um, fully entrenched in the grant making that we do. And so as the director of grant making, I, um, I ensure that people on the ground doing the work to ensure communities of color um, have the resources that they need to have a love for, a connection with, um, and abundant joy within the outdoors, that they get those resources. Um, and so it's a really, really privileged place to be in, and it's a responsibility I, I take very seriously, but I also take um, as a great opportunity for joy, um, because I know that communities of color, like my own experience, have been connected with the outdoors um, for a really long time. And so any way that I can ensure that that connection continues to be there, um, or any way that I can ensure that it gets strengthened um, I'm always down for. And so as, as the director of grant making, I get to do that work on a daily basis and it, it's a beautiful thing. Right. Yes. The work that y'all do is incredibly important and amazing. And when I see like the trips that y'all do, like the stories that y'all share, it's so inspiring to all of us um, as to what we're doing at Just As Outside. Um, and I know that, right, the grant making model at Just As Outside isn't, you know, traditional. So could you speak about how grant making at Justice Outside is radical and why is that important? Yeah, our grant making at Justice Outside is is radical in its approach. Um, we are deeply, deeply centered in um, people and relationship, being in good and right relationship um, with people, whether they're grantees of ours or not, but particularly 
when they are grantees. Um, and so our approach is rooted in, in what it could look like to have a, a trusting and healthy relationship with each other. And so we do not require 501c3 status or fiscal sponsorship of our grantees. Um, we are looking at grantees who are being led by Black, Indigenous, and people of color um, as the priority, um, because we know that within traditional philanthropy, um, that Black, Indigenous, and people of color-led environmental organizations um, receive a significant um, amount less than their white counterparts. Um, additionally, we offer general operating grants, um, which is like, if you are raising money, it is how you can keep the lights on um, when so many other grants out there can be restrictive. And then um, lastly, we are working with organizations that have under a million in uh, annual operating budget because we know that when you start to reach a certain strata of um, fundraising within the nonprofit sector, it attracts more funders. And so if we're hitting the strata um, below that, the, the level where folks are not attracting larger funders because their annual operating budgets are smaller, um, we know that our impact in that gift is double. Not only are they receiving the financial resources that they need, but we're helping building that narrative of investment to hopefully attract other investors. Um, and so we... It doesn't feel radical to us anymore because we've been doing it this way for quite some time. But we know that within the larger philanthropic field that some of these ideas like general operating um, funds, like prioritization around leadership of color, um, they still are pretty ra radical within the field. Right. And even one aspect that I noticed immediately is that even in the application process, right, it's can accept video inter video applications or in lieu of like written applications, right? As we know that, you know, just the labor that is involved in applying for grants is so, it's so much in every step. Yeah, exactly. We're an organization that is led by women of color that have been fundraisers um, for our own work. And so we know how laborious uh, grant applications can be. We know that they take time and energy and effort, um, that even if we have a boilerplate or a template, um, that meeting the requirements of funders can still be a huge barrier, especially for smaller organizations that don't have a development team. Um, and so we try and make our application process as accessible as possible. Um, we ask basic contact information so we know how to get a hold of you. We ask for an annual budget if you have it. Um, if you don't have it, it's something we're willing to work with you on um, over the, the first year of your grant. And to your, to your point, um, we invite people to think about an application that meets their needs and their capacity. So we accept a written application, which is kind of the traditional, although our written applications, we we ask for no more than two pages and we provide a set of four questions um, so that folks know exactly what we're looking for in that written application. So we're moving, removing any ambiguity. Um, and then, uh, or you can submit via a conversation with one of our staff members who will talk to you, talk you through those questions and record your responses and your application will be scored um, in accordance to what you were able to, to, to vocalize or to share in that format. Um, because we know that writing can be a real barrier to accessing funds um, and that not everybody has the same um, 
opportunity or advantage of having things like a grant writer on staff um, or even the experience of writing, having written a grant before. Um, but when we give people the opportunity to talk about their work, um, their mission, their passion, their enthusiasm, all of that is able to come through um, and can carry an application um, kind of in a way, even if they don't have a, a lot of experience um, applying. Right. It's amazing how much of a difference, right? Like taking down just like these barriers of access, labor, knowledge. And as you said, experience, right? Because I, as you said, like, it's not even just writing ability, it's grant writing ability that you need to do that. Um, and I, I think it's really great how just as outside models that, right? As you said, it, it shouldn't be, I don't think it should be radical. It should be the norm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we stick by it and hopefully it becomes less and less radical. That's the hope. Yeah. Um, and shifting gears a little bit, I really appreciate your insight on this, I guess, acknowledging like our positionality, right? Um, right, just as outside, most of us, right, are, Black, Indigenous, people of color working in a very white dominated field and especially right in grant making and philanthropy, that's very much the case. Um, and a lot of the times um, the people that are most vulnerable are tasked with, you know, like solving the problem. So for environmental justice, that tends to fall right on um, Black, Indigenous commu and communities of color to solve this problem, despite the fact that it should be privileged people that should really be taking the lead. However, in reality, we know that that is not the case, right? Um, so how do you, how do you view this and negotiate this in your work? Yeah, I, it's a complicated question. Um, and so one of the things that I always kind of try and find to recenter myself um, when thinking about, uh, you know, whose responsibility, whose capacity, whose privilege, all of those things is um, comes from the work of disability justice advocates, which is nothing for us without us. And I really use that as a, a stake in the ground, a tent pole, if you will. We are an outdoor organization. We can talk about tents, but um, <laughs> a tent pole of, of our work, which is um, we cannot create solutions without the people who are closest and most impacted um, by the problems that we face. So even in our grant making, um, you know, we came about our grant making approach and framework by talking to other leaders of color in the environmental sector and saying, what are some of the barriers you face? We know what we face as an organization led by women of color, but let us ground truth that and make sure that um, we're not creating a system that would serve us, um, but nobody else. And so we really hold to heart that nothing for us without us. Um, and so every time we think about our work, we're always thinking about who is closest and most impacted by the problem um, and how can we elevate and amplify um, the solutions that they're proposing. For a grant making, it means funding those solutions, right? Um, but even in our own conversations internally, it means making sure that we have systems in place to prioritize um, those that are most marginalized um, by the historic inequity they experience, right? Even just something as simple as saying, we prioritize black indigenous and leadership of color in our grant applications 
is one way for us to amplify the work that is being done by um, BIPOC communities across the country. Because um, it's easy enough to say, well, we work with community colors, um, but there's a level of um, removed that people experience when we say we work with them as opposed to we elevate, amplify, and fund leadership of color. Um, and so it's, you know, I always say it takes all types to make the revolution happen, right? So there certainly is a place for our white counterparts and, and colleagues and allies um, within the movement. And that place should not be prioritized around those that have been most disenfranchised from environmental justice work um, because of the historic inequity. On point, Rena. on point. Um, thank you so much for explaining that. And I know, you know, the grant making team this year and also in the past year has undergone some exciting expansion. Um, could you discuss a little bit about that experience of um, doing grant making in new regions, kind of the different types of communities um, that you're working with? How has that been? Yeah, it's been an incredible journey. And, you know, uh, our grant making team, shout out to Efrain, Amelia, Diana, Michelle, uh, are doing Ooh. incredible work <laughs> connecting with grantees on the ground, um, being a support system and, and all of the things. We did expand recently to the Carolinas. And so, um, it's been very, very exciting to to be in a new region. For us, it's our foray, our foray into the South. Um, we currently have grant making in the Pacific Northwest, the Southwest, California, um, and the Delaware River watershed. Um, and so our grant making in the Carolinas is a brand new region for us. And one of the things we took very, very seriously in expanding, um, regardless of the region, this year happens to be the Carolinas, is this idea that... Um, we can't be removed from the work. And so if we are going to expand into a region, we really have to put boots on the ground and we have to meet the communities doing the work. We have to pay the communities doing the work for their time and energy and effort in meeting us. Um, and we have to go to them. It's not enough to, to, as much as I love it, to Instagram search for organizations doing the work. I love to see all the Instagrams and, and the tiki talkies uh, with <laughs> People doing in the outdoors and talking about environmental justice, but there's something important and special about actually going and breaking bread in, in the regions that we're expanding to um, and having a depthful understanding in our own experience. Um, not that the, the experience is any more important when we go out there and we do it, but rather to say we are we see you as an invaluable part of our community and we are going to go the distance to make sure we are meeting you where you are at and not vice versa. Um, because we are, as the funder, are in a position to have the resources to do that um, and, to, and to educate ourselves. That's the difference, right? That Anytime we approach a new region, we should be educating ourselves about that region and not hoping someone will come along and tell us when we've messed up um, or what we need to do. Right. We need to go out there. We need to figure it out to the best of our ability and then ground truth what we understand with the people who are living the life um, day to day in that region. Right. And that's also part of right. That radical model. Right. Is that it's not kind of 
I don't know, there's is the traditional hierarchy of like more like managing or controlling or whatever, but disrupting that status quo itself is radical. Um, so I'm very appreciative of what you and the grant making team do every day here at Just as Outside. Mm-hmm. Um, moving away from work now, obviously your work and your passion for the outdoors is not all of Rena. Can you tell us a little bit about your hobbies and what you like to do in your spare time? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you gave me a list of questions, so it's not a surprising question, but I think it changes day to day, right? Like, um, the reality is to, to be a woman of color in this world means that we have to find the joy wherever we can. And what was joyful and, and a hobby the previous day may mm-hmm. not be the same the next day, right? Like I may love baking one day and then the next day I'm just like, this is exhausting. Can I just watch some Parks and Rec, right? So, um, but Hobbies that I consistently enjoy um, now that it's getting warm uh, and we're in the summer months, uh, I have a pool. And so lying on a little floaty raft in my pool, <laughs> reading on my Kindle uh, is a big thing that I love <laughs> to do. I still love the outdoors, but as I get older, my relationship with mm. what I want to do in the outdoors becomes one in which I'm striving for greater ease. So in my 20s and early 30s, I was very excited Mm -hmm. to plan camping trips and backpacking and and going out and finding a good climbing pitch. And like now I'm just like, that's exhausting. Can we just take a nice little drive through the country and point at cows? Like my relationship is changing, um, but I still enjoy an easy to moderate hike, especially with my dog and my husband. Um, it brings me a lot of joy to see my dog out on a trail. Um, of course, only the ones where she's allowed to be unleashed, but uh, it brings me a lot of joy in a way that um, just being able to see the green and the grass and feel the breeze through the trees um, doesn't happen in my day-to-day life. So uh, additional hobbies. I don't know how much you want, but I am. I love hobbies. Hello. I am a crafty person. I love arts and crafts. Give me an opportunity to to decoupage something or to sew something. I'm all about it. Um, I'm also, and I think I've told you this, I'm super into true crime. Give me a true crime documentary <laughs> or a podcast. I need to know how people survive and don't survive these situations. So if I ever find myself in this situation, I know what to do. Uh, yeah, I love a true crime podcast. Um, I although that. I never want to be the subject of one. So yeah. here's hoping. No, this is the podcast you're a part of, though, but not a true crime one. Yeah. <laughs> also. I mean, I think you're living, you're living well. You were talking about how you were doing all these, I'm in my mid twenties and I did not do anything you were doing in your twenties and thirties. Like I also want ease. That's great. I got started early. Um, And I also do like some true crime as well. Literally for the same reason of if I'm in that situation, like how can I act? It's also, I also really enjoy, I don't know if you would enjoy this, but kind of like natural, like 
survival, like survival in nature, like in disasters, like a volcano erupted and people were caught there. Like, what do they do? Just in case that happens to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Every once in a while, my husband will turn to me (laughs) with, with all sincerity. He'll be, he'll go, you're the person that would survive. And I'm very proud that he tells me that because he fully recognizes he is not the person that would survive. (laughs) Based on my life experiences and my sheer willpower uh, at times, I, I am quite pleased that I think I would be like, We've been watching yeah. it on this and like, granted, zombie apocalypse is not high on my list of things I would like to survive, but I think I would do okay, at least for like the first six months. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely would call it quits in a zombie apocalypse. It's too much. <laughs> After watching that, I was like, that's too tiring, I but I can do like a short term thing. Survive. <laughs> like. Well, yeah. since going back into the outdoors, you have spent so much time in the outdoors. You have talked and all, that has evolved a lot, right? In different contexts <laughs> from your childhood to carne asadas to your trips, your camping trips that I don't think I understand how hard they are, but they seem hardcore. Um, and now, you know, now one defined more by ease. What is, well, maybe it might be hard to limit it to one tip, but what is, what are outdoor tips you'd like to share um, for other people listening to this. Yeah, I'd say um, do not underestimate the value of learning multiple ways to start a fire. Like it is, uh, you should know multiple ways, like know how to how to build a good fire if you're just like in the backyard with your fire pit and like what's the teepee method, what's the log cabin method. Um, but also like, if you're one of those people that are going to be out there, learn how to rub those sticks together. <laughs> Start a fire, I think, is a really good um, tip and and always an impressive one. Like nothing is, is more impressive than someone's like, oh, your matches got wet. Here we go. Let's <laughs> I've got a flint and stone or I've got, got scrub together. Right. Um, so yeah, multiple ways to start a fire. I'd say if you're, I did a lot of trip leading in my youth. So I did a lot of, um, camping and backpacking with young people. Um, do not underestimate the value of the secret candy stash. If you are taking (laughs) kids out and you have packed them, the granola bars and the cheese and, you know, Nothing will be more exciting to that child than when at night or midday and they're tired, you just whip out a bag of gummy bears, right? Like nothing is more exciting. Uh, So if you're working with young people, always, always bring a secret stash of of candy treat. Um, Yeah, I think those are my big tips. Fire and treats. I'm like hiding my face because I know zero ways to start a fire. And you talked about the teepee method and another method. I do not know. So I need to, I need to do that. I will take your words, but I could definitely deliver on candy. I know that. (laughs) Well, Rena, we're towards the end of our episode. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Any knowledge, words before we close out our session? Let's see. I'd, I'd love to share something profound. I just can't think of anything. <laughs> you shared enough. <laughs> That's okay. I, I guess uh, my 
parting words before we sign off will just be that um, there's a million different ways to be outside and we often don't receive enough messages um, that any way that works for us and our bodies and our mental health is the right way. Um, so, you know, you may not be into the backpacking and the rock climbing um, and that's okay, right? The, the ease and the gardening or a nice, a nice hammock on a, on a breezy day, those are beautiful ways to be in relationship with the outdoors and, and with our community. And so um, there's no right way to do it. Um, and the only wrong way is to not do it. Thank you so much, Rena. It's been such a joy talking to you and learning more about you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Susan. It's been so lovely to connect with you. Thank you to our listeners, old and new, for joining our conversation today. Any resources and other third-party references can be found in our show notes. To stay up to date with our podcast, please subscribe. Please take a moment to leave us a review. We'd love to know what you think about our podcast. If you want to learn more about Justice Outside and our work, follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletter at www.justiceoutside.org. Finally, if you have any questions you'd like us to ask in future interviews or have any feedback overall, please reach out to us through media at justiceoutside.org. We hope you'll join us next time at Joy Outside.